You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Building projects require a blueprint, a picture of the finished product, something to consistently reference during construction, a goal to work towards, a guide to follow. But what is the blueprint for the church? What picture is the reference for God's people? What is the guide for the Christian life? Jesus promises to build his church, but how? The blueprint for the church isn't a list of policies and procedures. It's not a plan for elaborate sanctuaries and classrooms, and it's not tips and tricks for increasing church attendance and budget. The blueprint for the church is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, who is equal to God. Jesus, who became a servant. Jesus, who died a sinner's death, though he was innocent. Jesus, who God resurrected and highly exalted. Jesus, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, he is Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a picture of humility and glory, a cross and a crown, sacrifice and exaltation, and it is the finished work Paul points to in the letter to the Philippians. It's the picture he looks to as he lives his life. It's the reference the Philippians followed to shape their church. The gospel is the blueprint we have to live our lives and build Christ's church. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Great. <laughs> Everyone's doing quiet. Uh, we're going fin- to continue, not finish, continue our series in Philippians. And so uh, if you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 through 11. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, we have some at the Connect table. You're welcome to grab one. And if you don't have one, like you don't own one, then go ahead and take that home. That's yours. First, ask you this. Have you ever had a goal to grow in something, something you want to get better at? Uh, you want to maybe improve a skill that you have or, or acquire one you don't have. One of my goals for this year uh, was to get stronger. Rick is always making fun of me for being weak. And so <laughs> I, I set out this year to, to try to get stronger. And so I got this strength training pr- uh, plan and program. And it's a really long program. Uh, it's like a 12-month thing. And it's, I've been doing it for a few months now, and I honestly have no idea if it's working. Uh, there's some days where it feels like maybe it's helping a little bit. There's a lot of days where it feels like it's not working at all. And uh, the, the coach that's like helping me with it, he is always like, you got to play the long game. And, uh, you know, like, uh, we'll, we'll wait till, uh, or trust the process. That's the phrase, right? Trust the process. Uh, don't worry right now. We'll check again down the road. And I'm like, okay, great. But how do I know if this process is working? So some days there's confidence. A lot of days there's doubts. And I'm sure you've experienced something similar to this when you've tried to grow in a skill or, or, or grow in some kind of way in your life. And so th- that's an example of physical growth and a desire to improve in some kind of way uh, and having this kind of shaky confidence, right? Where it's like, ah, maybe this is working. I don't really know if it is. It's supposed to, but I can't guarantee it. So what about, uh, what, what about spiritual growth? What about sanctification? What about things where we want to be more like Christ? We want to see sin removed from our life. We want to see more obedience in our life. Uh, But do we have the same kind of shaky confidence, the same kind of 
I don't know, it might happen, I hope it happens, but there's really no way of knowing or guaranteeing if I'm actually going to grow in Christ-likeness as I'm supposed to. Should our experience in growth and godliness in spiritual matters be the same as our growth in other areas of life? I think in today's text, we're actually going to see that we can have a much greater confidence, like Ian was saying, we can actually have an assurance. We can, we can see that fruitfulness in our life, growth in godliness, sanctification is a sure thing. Paul has this kind of surety, this kind of confidence in the Philippians' growth, and I think that we can, we can have the same kind of confidence in our own. So let's read uh, this text, verses 3 through 11 of chapter 1, and then we'll work our way through it. It says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your church and that we can gather together uh, to worship you, to hear your word, uh, to fellowship with one, one another and, and grow relationships. God, I pray that this morning you would use this text in our lives to encourage us, uh, to instill confidence in us uh, of our salvation, not based on something that we are doing or, or, or some kind of ability within ourselves, but based on you and your faithfulness. I pray that today would be uh, an opportunity or a chance for those who are not in Christ to consider and evaluate what that might look like to have confidence about eternity. And I pray that you would draw people to yourself this morning through your word. And I pray that you would help uh, me preach the gospel boldly and clearly, uh, and that you'd use it to convict, challenge, comfort, uh, encourage each and every one of us here this morning. Jesus, I pray that we would make much of you with our time together and that you would uh, encourage us uh, by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul is confident in the Philippian salvation. If you look at verse 6 again, uh, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So why, how can Paul be so confident in the Philippian salvation? And how can we be confident in our own? What kind of things can we look to that gives us the same kind of confidence, the same kind of assurance of our salvation that Paul sees when he looks at the Philippians? And we're going to look at two things today, our fruitfulness and God's faithfulness. So how can we have the same kind of confidence in our salvation, our fruitfulness, and God's faithfulness? We'll look at fruitfulness first. The fruit that Paul is talking about is the fruit of love. In the second half of his prayer, he, he prays that the Philippians' love would abound more and more. And so what he's been talking about up until that point is a love that he then asks would grow more and more. This is the, the fruit of righteousness. The, the fruit that is born in the Christian's life uh, through sanctification is a fruit of love. Now, love is a word that has all kinds of definitions and I would say misrepresentations and wrong definitions in our culture and our world. 
And our world love uh, is equated with tolerance oftentimes, where I love you if I don't mess with your life, if I don't step on your toes, if I don't offend you, if I don't make you feel bad, if I don't make you feel uncomfortable. It's love if I mind my own business and let you do whatever you want. It would be unloving of me to offend you, to step on your toes, to redirect or change the course of your life in any kind of way. But this is not a biblical love. Biblical love, as we see in God's love for us, is a sacrifice. It's costly. It, 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 it is accompanied by truth. So love is, is a cost to me. It's a jo- benefit to you, and it's a joy to both of us. Love is when we lay down our life, when we give up some of our comforts, our desires, when we, co- when we make sacrifices for the good and benefit of another. That's what God has done for us in Christ. That's what love looks like when we love one another. And this love, Paul says, it grows and it abounds in or with knowledge and discernment. With knowledge and discernment. So knowledge of things, knowing who God is, knowing who people are, knowing who we are, an understanding of godly things, but then discernment also is applying this knowledge. It's like having moral faculty. It's it's taking the things you know and actually putting them into practice in your life. Paul says this is how love grows. When your knowledge grows, when you increase in knowledge, and then when you apply that knowledge to your life, you can better love. This is not a foreign concept to us. Think about any relationship you have. I can better love my wife the more I know about her. I know that my wife appreciates words of affirmation. Now, I can know that. If I never say anything nice to her, then I really haven't done much, right? But with discernment, putting that knowledge into practice, I say nice things to her, I give her words of affirmation, and then that is loving. I can't love something or someone I don't know anything about, and the uh, the same applies to God. The more we grow in our knowledge of God, the more we grow in our knowledge of godly things, the more we apply that knowledge then into our life, the more our love for him and others grows. And then Paul says that this love results in a changed worldview and changed behavior, that you may approve what is excellent and be so pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You see, our our love is not just an internal fuzzy feeling that we have. It's not just something between me and another person. As our love for God grows, it actually changes the way we view the world. It changes the way we act and interact with others. It changes the decisions we make, the lifestyles we live. Love changes everything about who we are and how we see the world. To where we approve what is excellent, we disapprove of what is not excellent, and we are pure and blameless. Now, this kind of love has very practical implications. That's kind of a 30,000-foot view of this fruit of love that Paul sees in the life of the Philippians. But there's some practical implications of that love in this text as well. In fact, I think in the, the first part of this text, we see four things that Paul identifies in the Philippians that are a result of the love that he wants to continue to grow. The first is friendship. You can see in this text and throughout the letter of the Philippians that there's an incredible affection and love and thankfulness that Paul has for these people and these people have for him. There's a a deep unity, a, a deep friendship, a deep relationship that Paul has with these people, though they're miles away, that, that, that comes through in this text. You see, gospel friendships, friendships we have with brothers and sisters in Christ should be unlike any other relationship we have in our life. That's why we can, the the unity that exists there is why we can mourn with those who mourn. 
and, and weep with those who weep, but then also rejoice and celebrate with those who are rejoicing and celebrating. Our emotions are so intertwined and connected with one another because of a unity we experience in the gospel. We can have all kinds of different backgrounds and lifestyles and hobbies and interests, but then we all come together in friendship because the thing that unites us is Christ. You have more in common with a believer in Jesus who lives in North Korea than you have with your non-believing neighbor who lives next door because you're united together in Christ. And that produces and develops this kind of friendship that we get to see an example of here and this love and affection that Paul has for them and they have for one another. So what kind of friendship and love and affection do you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ, for those in this room? Is there a unity there that, that leads to a, a shared emotion, a, a shared affection for one another in friendship? The next thing that Paul points out that we see here is generosity. He says that from the beginning, you've been partners with me in the gospel. This means a lot of things, but it also most definitely means financial partnership. In fact, the occasion for Paul writing this letter to the Philippians is a thank you letter. The Philippians heard about Paul being in prison, and they wanted to help and support his needs, and so they send Epaphroditus, who we'll read about later, with a financial gift to take to Paul. And then Paul writes this letter saying, thank you, I love you, here's a, a bunch of awesome stuff about God and about Christ that I want to remind you of, and he sends that letter back with Epaphroditus to the Philippians to say thank you. The Philippians are so committed to the gospel, they're so committed to their friend Paul, they're so committed to the gospel going forward and advancing that they were willing to give financially to that cause. The, the love that they have for God, the love that they have for one another that is growing and producing fruit in their lives leads to a generosity with their time, with their finances, with their resources. See, when we recognize God's generosity towards us in Christ and what he gave so that we could be his, we will turn around then and be generous as well with what we have to give back to God so that others might become his. And so generosity is another implication of this kind of love that Paul sees in their life. The next thing is suffering, a willingness to suffer. It says, you've been partakers with me of grace in my imprisonment. Now, the Philippians are not in prison with Paul, but they also have not distanced themselves from Paul because he's in prison. It would have been really easy for the Philippians to, to make the socially and politically wise decision and say, we're not associated with that man who is in jail. We're not associated with him who is in prison, who's in trouble with the law. But they haven't done that. In fact, they've doubled down their support. They've pressed in even more and, and bolstered, bolstered their appreciation and support and, uh, and un unity with Paul. We also know in the first century that Christians faced a lot of persecution. Christians face a lot of pushback to the message of the gospel. Eventually, it gets violent, but it starts off with social discomfort, with economical, economic impacts, uh, uh, political, uh, political impacts as well. Living as a Christian in the first century, you were an outcast, you were an outsider, and that had effects on your life. But Paul is identifying in the Philippians a willingness to suffer, a willingness to be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel. We love comfort in our world. We love to be comfortable. We make so many decisions throughout the day that are directly related to our comfort. And yet we have a savior who became incredibly uncomfortable on the cross for us, who was stripped naked and bare, who experienced pain and suffering, also that his love could be put on display and we could be brought into his family. 
is how much are we willing to suffer? How much discomfort are we willing to endure for the sake of Christ, for the sake of others knowing Christ? And then the last thing, the last implication of this love that Paul sees in them is their proclamation of the gospel. They're actually really ready and willing to speak it. It says, you've been partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They're ready and willing to defend the gospel, I think verbally, and then confirm it with their life, with their actions. They're ready to give a defense for the hope that is in them. They're ready to speak boldly the truth of the gospel. They're ready to explain what it means that God has sent his son to rescue a sinful and broken creation. They're ready to defend that truth. And then they're going to follow up that defense of the truth with a confirmation based on how they live their lives. They're going to live in such a way that says, oh yeah, these people actually believe this message that they're proclaiming. So how can we be confident in our salvation? The first evidence of a, of a salvation we can be confident in that Paul is identifying is fruitfulness. Fruitfulness in our life that's evidenced in love for God and others that has implications that, go, that stretch into every area of our life. Our relationships, our friendships, our finances, our budgets, how we interact with those in our world, how we do business, how we uh, engage in social environments, what we say, what we do. No area of our life is untouched by this love that is growing in us because we've been brought into Christ. Now, I want to be really clear here, okay? Uh, we're looking at evidences that salvation has already taken place, not things you must do in order to earn or gain salvation. These are things that Paul is witnessing happen naturally in their life and saying, yes, there's salvation here that I can be confident in. He's not saying you need to do these things in order that you can obtain a salvation you can be confident in. If salvation is present, if salvation has occurred, these things are the natural outworking of that sure salvation. Now, I said our fruitfulness and God's faithfulness, and these two things are not Separated, they're connected. And so, question, rhetorical, don't answer. Uh, does the sun set or does the earth rotate? The earth, we would all say, hopefully, probably, the earth rotates, right? To be the, the nerdy science person. The earth is rotating. That's true. But I don't think it's wrong to say that from our experience, from our pers- perspective, it looks like the sun is setting. <laughs> well, it's not wrong to call what we see in the evening a sunset. Because from our perspective, the sun is going down. And yet we know that there's a greater reality that is causing that to be our experience, and the earth is rotating, making the sun look like it's going down. Our fruitfulness is like a sunset, and God's faithfulness is like the earth rotating. It's not just that we are fruitful and God is faithful. We are fruitful because God is faithful. Our fruitfulness is dependent upon God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness results in and leads to our fruitfulness. And from our perspective, It looks like the sun is setting. We can see fruit born in our lives. We can see love take action in our relationships and the way we deal with money and and our our proclamation and defense of the gospel. And all the while, behind the scenes, it is God's faithfulness that is producing this fruit in us. So our fruitfulness is because of God's faithfulness. What is God faithful in? What's he faithful to do? Verse 6, we read it again earlier. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what is the good work? The good work is the good work of salvation. It's the good work of rescuing 
sinners from eternal hell and saving us to be in eternal relationship with a loving God. And there's three aspects to this good work that are identified in this verse. The work began, the work is being brought along, and then the work gets complete. We looked at two of these last week. The beginning of the work we refer to as justification. It's the the moment in time where our hearts are regenerated, we're converted, God God takes a hold of us, and we are declared righteous. it's, It's when... It's when in the eyes of God, a moment in time, something happens where we go from sinner deserving of separation from God to saint in God's family for eternity. It's justification. It's when the work begins. Sanctification is as that work gets brought along. It's us growing then in the godliness that's been given to us in Christ. And then the completion of the work we refer to as glorification. One day when Jesus returns, All those who are hidden in Christ will be given a glorified body where we are not plagued uh, or or damaged or broken by sin or suffering anymore. And we will experience glorious eternity with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. So God has saved us, justification. He is saving us, sanctification. And one day he will save us, completely and totally, glorification. And if God has started this work, Paul says he's going to be faithful to bring it to completion. If you've been justified, you will be glorified. That will happen. You can bet your life savings on it. You can take out another mortgage and bet that on it as well. It's going to happen because God is faithful to complete what he started. How is he going to do this? How is God bringing about this good work of salvation, past, present, and future? In verse 11, it says that all of this is coming through Jesus Christ. It is through Christ that we have been saved. It's through Christ that we are being saved, and it's through Christ that we will be saved. Like Ian said earlier, we believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, who took on flesh and came and walked a perfect life. We can be justified because Christ earned righteousness through his perfect life of obedience on, the, on, the, on this earth, and then paid the penalty for our unrighteousness in his death on the cross. And then if we place our faith in him, we're united to him, that righteousness belongs to us and our sin belongs to Jesus. That's how justification is possible, is through Christ's perfect life and death. But then he's also promised to make us new. And so in our sanctification, those who are hidden in Christ, if you are in Christ, you will become like Christ. He's given us his spirit to convict us of what is true, of what is right and what is wrong and empower us to walk in obedience to the commands he's given us. And one day Jesus will return and he will make all things new and we will be glorified in him. See, if if you're in Christ, we talked about this last week, if you're a saint in Christ, you cannot be removed from Christ. That that, that will not end. There's no fear of losing your status or standing or position in Christ. It's eternally secure. And Paul says he knows this, he's confident of this, because of his affection for the Philippians. This is, I think this is a fascinating verse. Verse 8, it says, God is my witness. So put God on stand, and he will testify to this as true. It's a bold claim to make. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. What's Paul saying? That my affections for you, my love for you, is the very affections and love of Christ. And my affections and love for you are such that I wouldn't let you go. If I started this work in you, I love you so much, I wouldn't let it, I I would bring it to completion. 
And he's saying that that's the kind of love I have for you, but that's not a love that's sourced and originated in me. That's Christ's love. And so if I love you in such a way that I would never let you go, then how much more does Christ love you in such a way that he would never let you go? We see this in a few other, well, a lot of other places in scripture. I'll read two of them. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep, this is Jesus speaking, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. If, if, if you are in the father's hand, no one will be able to snatch you out of that. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you will become like Christ. There's, a, there's this irony of growth as a Christian. Normally when we think about growth, we're thinking about becoming something that we currently aren't or acquiring something we currently don't have, right? We're trying to get to a place that we haven't been before. But growing as a Christian is growing into something you already are. Sanctification is becoming something that you've already been given in your justification. If you're in Christ, you're pure and blameless. You're spotless. You're righteous. Paul says that this love will grow into a purity and a blamelessness at the day of Christ. That's already yours. You're already pure and blameless because you're in Christ. So I became a father when my first son Riggs was born on February 16th, 2021. I get the title of dad but I'm much more of a father now, two years and another kid later than I was even though I was a dad right then, right? Same with marriage, became a husband. Hopefully I'm much more of a husband now, seven years later than I was the day I got the title of husband. You're in Christ, you're a saint. You've been given the title pure, blameless, holy, righteous. And now it's just growing into what you've already been given. And the same way, that I'm growing into being a father, which I've been for two years. And what's the point of all of this? Why would God do all of this? It's so that he would get glory. Verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. This is not for our glory. It's not so that we might get recognition or praise or fame. It's for God's glory. John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And if God's ultimate purpose is to spread his glory among the whole earth, if, God's, if the end game for God is glory for himself, which it is and it is rightfully so, then it is in his best interest to keep us and complete the good work that he started in us. Because everything he is doing in us is for his glory. Because, because we don't add anything to it. We don't add anything to our salvation. There's no part of it that is up to us and our good works or our effort or our energy or our craftiness to make God love us, save us, complete us. It's all up to him and his steadfast love and faithfulness. And so he gets the glory when that takes place. So I, I don't know uh, if you're like me, there's probably sins in your life 
that you wish you had conquered. If you're like me, there's probably areas of your life and your Christian growth where you wish you were further along. You wish that you had control of your temper. You wish you had self-control when it came to food and drink. You wish that you could say no to pornography and sexual sin. You wish that you were further along and you think, man, if I could just get to where I could be maybe in 10, 15, 20 years, then God would love me. Then I could be proud of where I'm at. Then people would, uh, would see me as spiritually mature or like I've grown. If only I could be further along than I am now. We've been... Uh, going on walks with our kids. And we've been trying to teach uh, Riggs, my oldest, how to cross the street and to be really safe when he crosses the street. And when we cross the street, I hold his hand. And as we go across the street, uh, sometimes he walks right next to me and he grips my hand. Sometimes as we're walking across the street, he loosens his grip. Sometimes he pulls against my hand. Sometimes he stops in the middle of the street. Uh, oftentimes he gets distracted with a plane or a bird or a butterfly or whatever it might be. Sometimes he turns around and wants to go the other way. But I never let go of his hand. I always hold on tight. So if God has reached down and grabbed your hand and is leading you across the street, you might loosen your grip. You might get distracted. You might try to walk away. You might pull against him. You might stop in the middle of the street. But you're going to make it to the other side of the street. Because God will never let go. And it is his faithfulness that we put our assurance of salvation in. It is his steadfast love that we place our confidence in. In Christ, God has has grabbed our hand, gripped it tightly, and no matter what we do, there's there's no escaping that grasp. He's going to hold on to us and lead us into eternity completing the good work that he started in us in Christ. Amen. Father, thank you for uh, your faithfulness. Thank you for your steadfast love. Thank you that we can have assurance of our salvation and and confidence knowing that you're going to complete the good work you started in us because of your character, because of your love, because of what you've done to prove yourself faithful through Christ. Pray that you would give each and every one of us a confidence and an assurance knowing that you are good and you are faithful and uh, you love us. And I pray that from that, out of that comes fruit. It's good to be fruitful. It's good to see the fruit of love uh, come about in our lives. Help us to know that the source of that fruit is always going to be your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.